The rest of you will turn your sermon outline. There are no blanks in there today, so I'm letting you off easy. It's a long scripture passage, so we're going to go read it as we go through it. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we start this book, which is difficult to understand, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to see the big picture of how you work. Remind us that you use sinful people like us to carry out your work even when we don't realize that you're doing it. Lord, it's our prayer that we would see you in a book that doesn't mention you. And for this, we need your wisdom and grace. We ask that you would give it to each of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the film Life is Beautiful, but if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It will make you laugh and it will make you cry. The movie starts out in the late 1930s uh, in Italy with a carefree Italian-Jewish bookkeeper named Guido Orifice. He starts his fairy tale life by courting and marrying a lovely woman from a nearby city. It takes place in 1939, and Guido, who is wonderfully played by the great Italian actor Roberto Benigni, he comes to Arezzo, Italy, with the plans to open a bookstore. In the meantime, he will work as a waiter at the hotel restaurant where his uncle Alessio serves as the maitre d'. And in town, he meets a beautiful schoolteacher named Dora, who comes from a wealthy Italian family. And for him, it's love at first sight. Guido falls for Dora, and he courts her by popping up unexpectedly, charming her with buongiorno, principessa, which means good morning, princess. He gets the timing perfect every time. And despite the fact that she's already in a relationship with another man, Guido ultimately sweeps her off her feet. She dumps her fiancé to choose Guido, who whisks her away on a green horse. Don't ask. They get married, and they have a son named Giosu. And Guido and Dora and Giosu live happily together until the occupation of Italy by German forces. And by Giosu's fifth birthday, World War II is in full force. And the war sort of continues on without them until one fateful uh, fateful day when the Germans arrest Guido and his son at his uncle's house and arrest the uncle too while they're getting ready for Giosu's birthday party. And they're sent to a concentration camp. Dora demands to be taken too, and Guido is devastated to see his non-Jewish wife board the train. And they take him away to a labor camp, wanting to be with her family. Dora insists on going with him, but she is separated and housed in the woman's side of the camp. And in an attempt to hold his family together and help his son survive the horrors of a Nazi concentration camp, Guido imagines that the Holocaust is a game, and that the grand prize for winning is a tank. And to protect uh, Giosu from the horror of what is happening to them, 
Guido tells them that they are playing this game and certain actions get points and other actions get points taken away or can even disqualify one from the game. And the first to reach 1,000 points wins the prize of a real tank. To get the points, Guido must complete tasks for the camp moderators, the Nazis, while avoiding the impending fate with everything that he can offer. He convinces uh, Giosu that the camp guards are mean because they want the tank for themselves. And all the other children are hiding in order to win the game. And he puts off every attempt of Giosu to end the game and return home by convincing him that they're, they're winning the game. They're in the lead. They're going to get the tank despite being in a concentration camp and surrounded by death and sickness. Josu never questions this fiction because of his father's convincing performance and his own innocence. Later in the movie, he refuses to take a shower and unknowingly escapes being sent to the gas chambers. So Guido hides his son with the help of the other Italian prisoners since there are no other children left. His primary goal is to keep Giosu safe at all costs while he tries to figure out how he's going to get his family out of the camp. And at the end of the movie, he hides Giosu in a junction box, tells him that everyone is looking for him, and he jeopardizes his own survival to prevent the Germans from discovering Giosu. And trying to find Dora, Guido is caught, taken away, and shot. But not before making his son laugh one last time by imitating the Nazi guard, as if the two of them were marching around the camp together. The following morning, the Americans break into the seemingly deserted camp. Giosu manages to survive and emerges from his hiding place just as a tank comes around the corner. He thinks he's won the game as the American tank arrives to liberate the camp. And he hitches a lift with the American soldiers on the tank out of the camp, not knowing that his father has died. And he soon spots his mother by the side of the road. And he calls to her, and she sees him, and he runs to her, and he yells, we won, we won, we got a 1,000 points, and we won the game. Daddy and me came in first, and we won the real tank. We won. Now, as you think about that movie, why do you think Roberto Benigni filmed this war story this Holocaust story, this story of a family trying to survive an empire bent on destroying it. And why do you think Roberto Benigni entitled this movie La Vita e Bella, Life is Beautiful? Was it because it had some funny slapstick humor in the beginning? Or was it because it had a pseudo-happy ending? Or was it because life is beautiful even when you just barely survive. Today we have another life is beautiful story. We have a beginning that looks like it's going to be a lot of fun, but it's just covering up a situation gone horribly wrong. And we have what appears to be a happy ending, except it's not. It's covering up an ongoing scenario of pain and oppression, doubt and despair. There are no heroes in this story, and no heroines either. The only hero in this story is God, 
and he's never mentioned. We're about to enter the strange and beautiful world of the book of Esther. And the first thing we'll see is that this is a book of flawed people. It's a book of flawed people. It's a much neglected book of the Bible, the book of Esther, and there's reasons why it's been neglected, but no excuses. Many preachers and commentators never touch it. Calvin and Luther didn't touch it. And I regret to say in 20 years of preaching and teaching, this is the first time I've tackled Esther with any thoroughness. But over the past few weeks that I've been studying Esther, I've seen it in a new light, and I've actually gotten quite excited about this study. And I have to warn you that I'm going to share uh, some conclusions with you that may challenge what you learned in Sunday school, or I have always thought. For example, I don't believe that either Esther or Mordecai, the principal characters, are great heroes of the faith or shining examples of godliness. They're often considered to be the heroes in the story, but they're not really. Nor are they heroes of the faith. Esther is no Daniel or even a Ruth. And Mordecai is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rather, I see both Esther and Mordecai as secret, compromising believers who have barely maintained their cultural Jewish faith, much less a strong commitment to God. They show courage, but they're not particularly courageous for God. And yet God uses them anyway to accomplish his purposes. As one of the only two books in the Bible named after a woman, Esther is usually paired with the book of Ruth. And while they're very different books, they have some similarities. Ruth is the story of a Gentile girl who is taken in by the Jews and marries a Jew. Esther is the story of a Jewish girl who is taken in by the Gentiles and marries a Gentile. But neither of those stories is really about their respective namesakes. Both are about the Bible's larger storyline of God's covenant to protect and redeem his people despite their sin and disobedience. Specifically, the purpose of Esther is to show how hundreds of thousands of Jews living in exile in the Persian Empire were saved from extermination by the hand of God and to motivate the Jewish people to remember God's providence perpetually through a feast known as Purim. Esther is a story in which the providence of God is hidden behind the ordinary events of life. God's name is not mentioned, not even once, in the ten chapters of Esther. There is no mention of him, yet his providence and his grace and mercy are prominently on display. His fingerprints are everywhere. And Esther points us to Christ as the one in whom God's grace and mercy ultimately comes to aliens and exiles, allowing them to become members of his family, a family to which he'll go any length to protect. The author of the book of Esther is unknown. Best guess is it was either Ezra or Nehemiah where it follows them in the scriptures, and they were contemporaries of Esther. We don't know when it was written, but the time of the events that are recorded are pretty clear. Chronologically, they fit between the 6th and 7th chapters of the book of Ezra. 
and they cover a period of 10 years, from 483 to 473 B.C. The king in this book is called Ahasuerus. Say that many times fast. But you can go by his more common name, which was Xerxes. So you may have studied Xerxes in school. And he was the king of Persia during this entire period. The location is present-day Iran. Some unusual facts, as I said, it's one of only two biblical books named after a woman. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther. There's no mention of the law, sacrifices, worship, Jerusalem, the temple, or prayer. The New Testament does not quote the book of Esther. Esther is the only Old Testament book that was not found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, not one commentary was produced on the book of Esther. And with the exception of Xerxes, no other person in the book has been historically verified. Now, I'm not saying these things to create doubt about the book, but it's to be honest about the facts and help explain why the book's been neglected. But the fact is, some neglected things are very valuable, and Esther is one of those. We don't even meet the two principal characters in our story today. That'll have to wait to next week. But we're going to lay the groundwork for their introduction. The book of Esther has humorous parts, but ultimately it was not written as a comedy, but rather as a tragedy. Nevertheless, the author, I think, has a lively sense of humor. There's a lot of satire in the book of Esther. And most of the satire is directed against the most powerful king of his day. So that brings us to the beginning of the book, Esther chapter 1, verse 1, and the lifestyles of the rich and famous. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned in, from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. As I said, you know him as Xerxes. And here he's displaying his vast wealth for six months. 
Xerxes the Great became king of Persia when his father Darius died in 486 B.C. And our story starts in the third year of his reign, at the very time the history tells us that Xerxes is planning a campaign against the Greeks to avenge his father's defeat in the famous Battle of Marathon. Some scholars believe this six-month-long exhibition of his wealth is primarily for the purpose of drumming up support for the oncoming military campaign to demonstrate that he could reward those who would rally to support the effort. So nobles and officials from all over his empire, which stretches from India to Ethiopia, are invited to this extravaganza. The focus of our chapter is not on the six-month-long party, but on the last seven days when Xerxes puts on the mother of all banquets. His banquet is held in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, and everyone in the winter capital of Susa, one of four capitals of Persia, is invited to come. The decorations are described in some detail from blue and white linens to gold and silver couches to mosaic floors made of precious stones. Wine is served in golden goblets, no two alike, and by royal decree, no one is denied what he wants. One can only imagine how much wine is consumed, which will become an issue as we move on to the next scene, which gives us the ancient Near Eastern version of the domino theory. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahurias, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If you don't get the satire in here, you're not going to get the passage. <laughs> so on the last day of the banquet, Xerxes decides to show off his trophy wife. 
And remember, Queen Vashti is giving a banquet for the women in the palace while the guy's party is going on in the garden. And when Xerxes was merry with wine, a polite way to say that he was drunk, he orders the eunuchs who guard his harem to bring the queen before the men so he can display her beauty. Now, this doesn't pass the smell test. If the king is drunk, no doubt most of these men are too. And the king is clearly treating Vashti as a sex object, a toy to be played with. In fact, some ancient Jewish commentators see behind the command in verse 11 for her to wear her royal crown, a hint that she is to wear only her royal crown. At any rate, Queen Vashti courageously refuses her husband's sexist demand. Now, please understand, Vashti could not take this step lightly. She knows that her husband has a history of unpredictable, unreasonable, and autocratic behavior. Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that a few years later, during his campaign against the Greeks, Xerxes beheaded all the men building a bridge for his army when a storm delayed its completion. So Vashti has to know that he's unlikely to accept her refusal without some retribution. And sure enough, the king becomes furious and consults verse 13, the wise men of the kingdom, concerning an appropriate course of action. He essentially calls a special cabinet meeting of the highest and wisest officials in the land to decide what should be done about Queen Vashti. These seven nobles are described as experts in law and justice, wise men who knew the times and closest to the king. But as you read it, in truth, they come across a lot more as the seven stooges. Pompous characters gathering a huddle, each offering his idea of what to do about Vashti. And again, I think the author wants us to sort of shake our heads and laugh at the absurdity of some of this. And of course, theirs is somewhat the nobles. They have a risky job. Because whatever they suggest has to make sense to the king, not only while he's drunk, but also when he sobers up. For example, if they suggest an execution for Queen Vashti, they have to consider the king may miss her later on and thus find themselves following her to the gallows. And those fears are not unfounded. If we go to the very first verse of chapter 2, we read, After these things, when the anger of King Ahas Urias had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So all the wise men agree her offense is not just personal, but universal. And they urge the king to issue an irrevocable decree that she be deposed and replaced. Look at what Memucon, their spokesman, says, verse 16. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. He is espousing the age-old domino theory. The domino theory has always been uh, employed in times of political crisis. Briefly stated, if you allow X, then X squared will surely happen. Some of you remember in the 60s when President Johnson used this theory to justify his expansion of the Vietnam War. If South Vietnam falls, the communists will soon be landing in San Diego. Didn't happen. Although here, Memucon's use of it is certainly one of the most questionable. He argues that if this offense uh, to the king is overlooked, 
all the women of the empire will despise their husbands. There will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So the advisors urge Xerxes to sign a decree that Vashti be disposed, uh, deposed and a better queen is found. Better, obviously, meaning more submissive. Though she will undoubtedly have to be at least as beautiful as Vashti. So they move ahead with this plan, which has the net result of making the problem worse. Look at verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give a royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So royal decree is published throughout the empire that every man should be the ruler of his own household as if a royal decree is all that it took. Once again, the humor is barely underneath the surface. In the first place, these clowns are about to become the primary publicists of the queen's behavior, since only the people uh, there at the party and probably only the small group of nobles know what has happened. But now they're going to send the Pony Express to the far-flung regions of the empire with news of her rebellion. So if there is a real threat that women all over the empire are going to follow Vashti's example, the king's advisors have only themselves to thank. Furthermore, if one woman's refusal of an unreasonable request by a drunk husband is all that stands in the way of the, per uh, the Persian version of a women's liberation movement, then their authority and leadership is tenuous at best. The best commentary on Esther uh, comes from Dr. Ian Duguid of Grove City College. And I can't improve upon his questions at this point. He asks, what was actually achieved by all this huffing and puffing? Is the social order of Persia really threatened by one woman's resistance? And even if it were, can such a principle of male authority in the household be imposed by government decree? And are all men to exercise power in such a self-centered way as the king did and expect instant obedience? And is every man supposed to banish his wife if she fails to submit to his will? Now, that's essentially the story as we have it in chapter 1. I hope you return next week for the rest of the story. But my purpose is not simply to tell a story. It's to get behind the story for the truth that we need to consider for our own lives. And so I want to ask this question, how do we survive as exiles? We haven't met the principal characters in the story, but I can tell you that they're Jewish. The writer of the story is Jewish, the recipients are Jewish, but they're not in Jerusalem, they're in Persia. They got there to make a long story really quick. The kingdom was established approximately 1100 B.C., in 931, Solomon died. The kingdom was divided. Northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes. Southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes. They were all apostate. They were all horrible. The northern kingdom was worse so. And uh, 
they had no godly kings. And the Assyrians came and conquered them and captured them and took them away. We never heard from them again. Southern kingdom was almost as bad, but it had eight kings who were somewhat godly. God tolerated them for another century and then allowed Nebuchadnezzar to uh, launch a conquest of Judah in 606 B.C. He looted the treasury, seized some people as captives, among them Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then he came back eight years later, took thousands more, and finally in 586 B.C., he leveled the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and Judah effectively ceased to exist as a nation. And as this tragedy is unfolding, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking to the people. He predicted that Babylon would not last long as an empire, that it would only last 70 years. And sure enough, in 539 B.C., the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, and Cyrus the Great became emperor. And Cyrus allowed some people to return to their homelands, including approximately 40,000 Jews who returned to what was left of Jerusalem, and we can read about that in the book of Ezra. However, most of the people chose not to return to Jerusalem. They were fairly comfortable in Babylon and even more so under the Persians. And they ceased to think of themselves as exiles. After all, hadn't Jeremiah told them to settle down and seek the success of the city where they lived? Jeremiah spoke to them in Jeremiah 29. And there's two passages there in your outline. The first one says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. And they took those words very seriously. But they forgot what he wrote next, which says, I will bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope a common passage and most often ripped out of context to justify whatever it is that we want to do. I can rip a passage out of context just as well as the next guy. Um, and even after allowed, they're allowed to return, most of the Jews stay. The majority stay. They had established businesses. They had advanced in government. They had experienced success. Why give up all this wealth and comfort to go back to the wasteland that was once the promised land? Now, my suggestion to you is there is a parallel between the Jews in exile in Persia and the people of God today right here in the United States. We are supposed to be spiritual exile, strangers, aliens, that's what we're called in 1 Peter uh, chapters 1 and 2. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In 1 Peter 2, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. But we've become pretty comfortable in our exile and fairly successful. But in the process, perhaps we've forgotten that our sojourn in this empire is temporary and we have a higher calling. And if we learn anything from our long study in Revelation, it should be that this world is not our home. So how do we live as exiles? How do we respond to the empire in which we live? Three quick points. 
We can't take the glory of this world seriously. Sometimes you just have to laugh. We laughed at the power brokers in the Persian Empire this morning with their presumption, their self-importance. But I think we should laugh at our own empire too. Because if we didn't laugh once in a while, we'd be crying all the time. Some of us take government way too seriously. We get very angry or very fearful. We believe the domino theory is an absolute law of the universe. And if one more tax is passed, or one more state adopts gay marriage, then that's all she wrote, the end is near. Well, maybe, maybe not. When I was growing up, we all thought that way. Back in the 60s and early 70s, it seemed the whole world was going to hell in a handbasket. Woodstock was not the peaceful rock concert that historians have made of it. You had the Black Panthers and the Weathermen. Vietnam was our long national nightmare. The assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And then I got to high school and we had Watergate. Seemed like the culture was imploding. And it seems like every generation has that, whether it was the Carter economic collapse, the Clinton moral collapse, or the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11. And maybe you feel that way today. You see freedoms eroding and oil exploding, and you read about an emperor who's surrounded by advisors who seem more like stooges than wise men, and that could apply to most countries in the world. So I'm encouraging you to laugh a little. Maybe not just at the government, but also at the corporate world, and also at the educational world, and also at the sports world, and perhaps even at the religious world each of which takes itself much too seriously much of the time. And I don't mean you shouldn't take issues seriously or you shouldn't be politically active, and I certainly don't mean that you shouldn't pray. But don't despair, don't lose heart, don't lose your sense of humor. In Psalm 2, when the nations rage and the people plot in vain, it tells us that he who sits in the heaven laughs. And if God can laugh at him, we can too. Second thing, we need to discern the fingerprints of God when he's silent. I've already told you God's not mentioned in this book, but he's not absent from it either. And the fact that we cannot see him working doesn't mean that he's not working. And in this chapter, he's behind the scenes creating a vacancy in the palace so an individual of his choosing can be placed in a position of influence to accomplish his purpose. Today, God's name is less and less welcome in public life but he's still there. And we have to discern the times and look for his fingerprints. And finally, we need to realize that our king is very different from Xerxes. And his kingdom is very different from the Persian kingdom. And if you think about those differences real quick, the God we serve is not capricious. He's not self-centered. He doesn't show off. He doesn't treat people as objects to uh, feed his pride and his pleasure. His law is beneficial for both men and women alike. If you remember, let's go back to where we started and finish with the movie Life is Beautiful and the Oscar-winning performance of Roberto Benigni, who played Guido in such a way to make you laugh and cry, sometimes at the same time. And both the beginning and ending of the film are narrated by his son, an older Giosu who's recalling this story and his father's sacrifice for his family. The movie opens with him saying these words, this is a simple story, but not an easy one to tell. 
And narrated years later, Giosu realizes the sacrifice his father made for him. And it was because of that sacrifice that he is still alive today. And it ends with the older Giosu saying, this is my story. This is the sacrifice my father made. This was his gift to me. Giosu is an Italian version of another name, Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. In Hebrew, Joshua is Yeshua which you know more commonly from its Greek transliteration, Jesus. You know Jesus. He is our king. And our king has also prepared a sumptuous banquet for his people. But when God summons his bride, the church, it will not be to expose her to shame, but to lavish his grace and mercy upon her. When you read Esther 1, you can't help but cheer Vashti for refusing to come before the emperor. But there is nothing noble about refusing to appear in the presence of such a good and gracious king as our king. Have you heard and responded to his call to come to his banquet? If not, then you too, like Vashti, are doomed to be banished from his presence forever. Remember, this empire is not our home. One day, when Jesus returns... The true banquet will begin. You need to be there. Remember that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess as we begin this book of Esther, we do so with a sense of weakness. We know you've hidden things here that are deep and difficult for us to grasp, and yet we sense something of the expectations and hope that's in this story. Help us to see this as a story not of uh, just of Esther, but of our own lives. Help us to understand we face the same issues, the same fears, the same doubts, and often we don't trust in you, even though we have no other options. Teach us these things, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.